Welcome to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. In this edition, we speak with Derek Osborne, Group Executive Defence and Social Infrastructure at Ventia. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Grant McCarran, and as ever, I'm joined by Kath Zeesing. Kath is, of course, the managing editor of Australian Defence Magazine and my co-host on the ADM podcast. Kath, it's been a little while. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Grant. Good to see you. And you. And today we're also joined by Derek Osborne. Derek's the Group Executive Defence and Social Infrastructure at Ventia. Derek, how are you doing today? Hi, Grant. I'm well. Hi, Kath. So, Derek, for for many people, I, in terms of our listeners, Ventia isn't probably the well-known brand uh, in defence compared to broad spectrum. So, what skills does the company bring to the table that defence will benefit from? Uh, you're right, Kath. Um, if we go all the way back, you know, we started, I guess, as as transfield back in the day, in the shipbuilding days, and and then uh, migrated to to broad spectrum and and now to Ventia. Really broad range of skills, obviously. Uh, we've got a big footprint right across the country in, in base services, which we've been doing for a long time and very proud of. Um, Ventia, as part of the acquisition of Broad Spectrum, uh, has bought a really innovative and um, industry-leading PFAS solution, which we know is a, a big challenge across the bases around the country. So we're doing work on the PFAS cleanup uh, program. Uh, more broadly, uh, we're a big player in the NBN construction space. So if you think about telco, digital, um, the whole uh, area around comms, uh, that's that's a capability that we bring uh, to the business. And then finally, something we've been thinking about a lot is our resources capability. We do a lot of work for some of the big resource companies around Australia. Uh, you think about their shutdown capability and the sustainment and maintenance requirements that they have we think those skills are directly transferable into uh, defence. You know, the ability to plan for shutdowns, the, the way they go about maintaining assets, that's capability we're certainly keen to bring to defence over the next few years. And um, the exploitation of big data and AI is probably the latest technology wave that's sweeping through defence at the moment. Um, what's been your experience with these technologies in some of those adjacent markets that you just mentioned? Oh, it's a really good question. The one of the biggest challenges I find is education, and um, I've, I wonder sometimes it doesn't matter what the problem is. The answer is Power BI, which is not really big data, and it's not you know really AI. It's, it's you know Power BI is a fantastic reporting capability. So in the first instance, you know my experience has really been taking the organisation on the journey as to what the difference is between. You know, that data capability and, and building out really smart solutions versus what is just a nice-looking reporting capability. So we're working very hard on, on the former, dare I say. Yeah, the, the latter is a must-have. You must have that good-looking reporting capability, but the ability to have all your data in one place, uh, the ability to exploit it, the ability to bring in uh, external data sources all into one place to really drive good outcomes for your customer. Um, I think that's that's the, the next big step for organisations. We're well on the journey. Um, as I say, getting skills is really challenging at the moment and, and so we're working very hard in that space as well to attract and retain the, the key people that we need. But fundamentally, I think 
my biggest challenge has been, in a way, educating the broader organisation about what it is and, more importantly, what it is not. And then if I go on a little bit, I think the other thing that's been really interesting and a fantastic discussion with Defence is around security because the moment you try and export data off a defence base, for example, that you know, crashes into a whole lot of challenges. And so one of the things we're working very hard on is how do we do that without compromising anything that defence security requirements would set out for us. And often that means working independently of defence networks. So in our space, we might be monitoring key assets, um, built assets around tanks, pumps, fire systems, etc. The ability to do that without necessarily having to rely upon the defence network means that we basically air gap defences, security requirements and, and the data needs that we have. So that's been an, you know, an interesting journey as well. Is that level of security something that you see in other markets as well? Or is would you say defence is probably the most demanding customer in that respect? I think in fairness to defence, they are. Demanding is not the right word, but it's, it's a fair word. Um, they're setting up a, a very high standard. We see it elsewhere and every customer that we work with has a particular view of data and what's really important in some cases it's all about privacy you know you collect data on thousands of you know we we maintain 67,000 houses on behalf of New South Wales state government for example in that case the data around or the issue around privacy is fundamental to that particular customer so every customer has a particular sensitivity around data and which is entirely reasonable defense obviously sets a very high bar and we're super supportive of that because the alternative is you know you wouldn't want to contemplate it so i think that is something that we can take that that experience we can take and and bring to other customers and to be honest it's competitive advantage in the broader environment in which we work the ability to say look we work with defense and that just automatically gives other customers a level of comfort, to be honest. Yeah, I could see that one definitely being the case. And it's interesting because you mentioned multiple customers. It's not just defense and also assets. And um, I'm aware that you're you're bringing your asset management best practice from aviation into defense. So how's that working out and, and what is it that you're bringing in from the aviation world? Look, we've, we've got some key people that have come from the aviation sector and, and our view was that particularly around the bases. You know, I heard um, the bases described as life support systems the other day um, for defence, and I really like that terminology. You know, it, it's, it's tempting to think of, of bases as, as being there in the background, but increasingly they are where defence not just lives and trains but runs operations from. Um, and so the availability of a base uh, increasingly, particularly with drones and cyber and, and all the other things that go on in, in the defence spectrum, the idea that defence is just a you know a community that needs to be looked after like local government is re- increasingly declining and the reality is they are life support systems and, and, we, and we really like that terminology. So we've brought some people in from the aviation sector to say, okay, well, what does availability really look like and, and how can you be very customer-focused? If you look at the airlines, they've had to change their asset management strategy from just being purely about you know, what's best for the asset as being what's best for the asset and the customer. So you know, the OEM might say, you must maintain this asset every 
three weeks or every 60 days or every certain number of hours to be optimal. But of course, that's not how the real world works. And so we've taken a, a bit of a blank sheet to our asset management approach to say, okay, what works best for the asset and for the customer? A really good example is some of the work we do up at Puckapunyal, um, where we provide maintenance to the armoured fleet that goes out into onto the training areas, onto the range, so that trainees get to use the equipment, tanks, you know, all the other cool stuff that we maintain. A purist would say, right, this particular beer kit has got something that doesn't work. The turret on the tank, for example, um, it's not working, therefore that particular uh, vehicle is not available today. But the reality is, well, they're not doing training that requires the turret, therefore we can still use that for driver training, for a range of other, th- other activities. And as a consequence, we can maintain high availability, give the customer exactly what they need for their training requirements, and then schedule the maintenance that we need to do to make sure that the equipment is maintained to a standard They're the things that we're really trying to bring in um, to our asset management approach so that the customer doesn't miss out just because a very pure view of of asset management would say, no, we must take this bit of kit offline on this day because we've hit 5,000 hours or whatever the case may be. It's almost like a minimum equipment list by type of training or type of exercise so that you can mix and match. Yeah. Exactly right. And that, again... A purist approach would just look at the data set, but a customer-focused approach is one that sits down with the customer and say, well, what, what's your activities? What's the plan look like on the range over the next week, two weeks, three weeks? And then overlaying the, the training schedule with the equipment and maintenance schedule, say, right, this is how we can, you know, this is how we can make the fleet available for you, give feedback to the customer so they can get absolute maximum availability. And if you think about it right now, post-COVID, yeah, there's a huge demand on the training areas um, and you know everyone's trying to catch up and do a whole range of things. So maintaining that availability is absolutely critical. So Derek, speaking to that asset management piece, um, what other, I guess, defence contracts do you have on the books for people that don't live and breathe Team Ventia? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, we've got a big footprint and, and we're not always the best at, um, at, at, at selling that big footprint, but uh, base services, so we've got people across the bases delivering you know, core capability around, as I said, that, um, that life support for, for the bases. Um, we operate with Joint Logistics Command, a couple of contracts. We have uh, the Defence Maintenance Support Service contract, which is effectively running Joint Logistics Command's workshops around the country. So all manner of heavy vehicles, fleets of equipment come in through those workshops for a range of, of servicing requirements, maintenance requirements, upgrade requirements. They're very cool, those workshops, to be honest. Yeah, there's always interesting things in there, and I never get my terminology right, but, you know, things that can be pushed out the back of an aircraft and land in water, you know, that's always good fun. And to find that in the workshop, you know, the guys are, you know, the team is always really proud of that. Outboard motors, you know, next to some really old Mack trucks and Land Rovers, you know, it's getting increasingly hard to find the parts for a Land Rover just quietly. But, yeah, there's still a few out there, not many, but a few. So DMSS is is, uh, a great contract. Um, We operate the clothing stores, again, for Joint Logistics Command. So if you're a young recruit coming in for the first time, you're most likely going to meet a Ventia person with a a measuring tape to to measure you up and size you up for, for your first kit. And then across the journey of, of your experience in the ADF, 
you'll come back to, to clothing stores every now and then to get the things that you need. Um, that's a transformational piece for us because uh, there's a lot of opportunity to bring that into, you know, into more modern times, the way that, to be frank, um, the market works for clothing um, is quite different to the way it works in the ADF. There's lots of things we can do there, and Joint Logistics Command is a great customer in that regard. They understand the journey that we can go on, which is uh, pretty cool. Um, we do uh, blast and paint work uh, down in Osborne uh, in Adelaide, so we've been working in the shipyard uh, down there for a number of years uh, across uh, the, the submarines, air warfare destroyer, and now um, uh, patrol boats, etc. We're working you know, right through that range of, of ships that have come through the shipyards, which has um, always been uh, a pretty cool uh, business for us as well. So uh, quite a bit going on. We recover. We're on the hook. If uh, a vehicle breaks down anywhere in the country, we're required to go and get it and bring it back. So um, I like to think of us as Australia's largest tow truck service. Um, <laughs> and uh, that... Um, that is sometimes challenging because generally defence vehicles don't break down in convenient space places. So um, no, they yeah. don't. Yeah, how rude! So, really, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> rude, yeah. But um, uh, yeah, lots of good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not just the the work on ships and and so on. It's, you're also doing work in space. You were assisting Jax's Hayabusa two mission recently. I, that caught my eye. I was like, cool. Yeah, I have to say. Um, Bit, bit, I mean, this is a first world problem, but a bit cranky with COVID because I would love to have been there f- for that. Um, that was just <laughs> a fantastic logistics challenge, you know, to, to support the Japanese uh, at Woomera with all of their logistics requirements. Um, yeah, just really good fun, to be honest, and great team environment, such good energy around that particular project. But from the moment we started, you know, th- there was just a, um, a really good feeling about what was possible. And so, but again, the logistics piece of fundamentally um, sourcing all the things that you need to spread out a workforce across the Woomera range to possibly pick up something, um, you know, which could have ended in disappointment, but thankfully ended as a huge success. Um, you know, we really, really enjoyed that project. And, you know, I think space is such an opportunity for the ADF for for Australia generally, just because of the capability that our training areas present, the ranges that we have, uh, great great opportunity for us commercially and and strategically. To be honest, yeah, it's great to see that Australia is actually finally picking up back to almost where they were back in the nineteen fifties until some short sighted decisions ditched us out of the space world. Yeah, no, you're right, and as I understand it, again, I'm. I'm I have no technical background at this at all, but, you know, Woomera is a pretty quiet place as well. So from an electronics point of view, it's a great place for people to go. So, um, yeah, great opportunities for, 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 as I say, for the ADF and for the broader commercial possibilities. I I love the fact that uh, space is also one of those things that you can rally uh, STEM programs around as well because it's just so inspiring and, you know, damn it all, space is sexy. It's cool stuff. Um, but I know like STEM programs are not just around space. Um, you know, there's other technologies and other disciplines, um, that we need to get engaged in the defense community. If we're going to have the workforce that we need to deliver on, um, government's really ambitious program. What's, 
what what are you guys doing in the STEM space to make sure that you're growing the right workers that you need where you need them? Yeah, it's a great challenge. I, I really enjoy the challenge that, that we have in that particular area. Again, the footprint that we have across, you know, we've probably got a ventier person somewhere on most bases, you know, around the country. So, yeah, that's a that's a really local footprint. And so from a STEM point of view, we can offer opportunities for people that they don't have to, to leave home for. You know, we recently picked up, you know, a series of grads that we, um, you know, Northern Territory Darwin-based graduates. Normally, you know, these are people that would, to get a role, um, would probably have to travel away from home. Um, and so great opportunity to be a grad at home. That's that's what I think is cool about, you know, the footprint that we have. So, you know, we, we're really trying to leverage that. And, and, you know, if people want to travel, fantastic. Of course, we'll support that. Um, but equally, if we can find STEM students, STEM grads that uh, wanted to be close to home, then that's an opportunity that we can bring as well. But just because of the the, the, the huge part of the huge footprint uh, that we have, um, yeah, I think eighty percent of our teams are teams of twenty people or less. So you get a really good experience being part of that particular program because you're not a grad that's running around getting coffee. You're being thrown in, being asked to work on real world problems. And, and we love that about it, to be honest. That, yeah, that is definitely great for grads and, and getting stuck into the, the real world. And you've, you've mentioned a number of times about logistics and organizing and making sure that the, the, you're there when they need you to pick up broken gear and so on. And, you know, and in the past, the, the old comment from way back was that the army travels on its stomach and that the supply line was the most important part of most armies, especially if they overextended and so on. So, so these days, it's a much more complicated environment. We've got the just-in-time. We've got parts coming in from overseas, which until recently was the way to go and in the last year has proven that maybe that's not so great, which raises the whole Australian industry component, um, the, the the supply chain assurance side of things. And that's it's been a topic we've touched on a couple of times in this podcast series. So... How are you finding that's changing? How how is the how, how are you developing that AIC and the and the assurance of the supply chain? Yeah, so there's a couple of elements to that question. AIC we're a massive fan of because we fundamentally believe we're we're close to, if not hundred percent AIC. Given that the nature of the work that we do, the capability that we have, um, we are almost always employing local people, local small and medium enterprises to support the capability that we bring to defence. I think we've got about 680 small and medium enterprises you know, on the books at the moment supporting defence, and they're almost always local. So from an AIC point of view, we clearly, and obviously biased in this regard, but clearly um, you know, feel like we're, we're ticking some boxes, kicking some goals, so to speak, um, in that regard. Assurances of supply chain is... A, a really interesting challenge because you're constantly looking to deliver good value for money. You're constantly looking to make sure that you can deliver the best outcomes uh, for defence. I think the maturity of defence these days in understanding that value for money is not the lowest price is, you know, it's second to none, to be honest. I think they just genuine, genuinely get that 
as a principal, which makes them you know, a valuable, highly valuable partner uh, to be working with. So we're very focused again on the quality of the supply chain, looking through the supply chain. For us, it's less about you know, parts, to be honest, and it's more about certainty of supply, surety of supply, the development of local capability, development of local industry. So, you know, particularly a state and infrastructure group, very focused on local industry plans. So I could go and engage a national supplier to, I don't know, look after air conditioning, for example, right across the country. Um, that would make my life easy, but you know, how does that work with a local industry engagement plan? So we're very focused again on how does that work? Where can we engage local industry? How can we support the local suppliers? Um, that that is you know, number one. Catering is a really interesting piece. Again, you could build some big national supply supply requirements, but equally you can be buying locally. Getting that balance is is really really important to balance the value for money proposition versus the buying local proposition. Possibly no right answer ever and possibly always things you can tweak, but equally it's something we're, we're very aware and awake to. Okay. Going back to some of that vehicle space things uh, there, Derek, I, I understand, have you been successful on both 8120 and 8140 for um, plant vehicles and the, the deployable version of that capability? No, they're both tenders in the box right now. Um, both uh-huh. progressing. Apologies. So yeah, no, no, that's okay. Um, so both tenders in the box right now. We, you know, we love our solutions for both. Um, you know, we obviously think we're very well placed for both. But yeah, just progressing through the, you know, the the normal processes um, and and reasonably in line with timelines that that uh, CASG have uh, published. And are either of those programs subject to AIC plans? I think both are, yes. And in fact, I know both are. And so, you know, we've written, you know, reasonably comprehensive AIC plans for both. Um, in some cases, uh, particularly 8140, you know, again, we've gone for a highly Australian, you know, approach to um, the supply. So we're looking for local manufacture of the equipment, local design of the equipment, uh, a whole range of things. To really um, to maximise the AIC, also you know not just around supply and design, but location as well. Eighty one forty, you know, looking at you know Queensland locations, New South Wales locations. So yeah, we're really trying to spread it as well, so that we can maximise the benefit to local areas. Okay, so you know some of the big plant equipment under eighty one twenty in particular is any of that manufactured in Australia at the moment? No, that, that's that's a challenge from an AIC point of view because it's it, it's sim- simply not. So in that regard, it's around what are the cool things we can do once it arrives, and that, and how do we develop the capability to, to sustain it? You know, our, our vision is to be the prime sustainment contractor for defence. So. How can we make sure that sustainment is done locally? We again assure supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. Derek, I, I just want to really drill down into, I guess, the ownership model and the contracting model that Defence is using there. Um, do you think that they've got the right framework in place? Uh, does Defence need to own this kind of stuff anymore? Uh, I'm of a view that, that there's a an argument that possibly not. It's a model that's you know been around for a long time, but Increasingly, uh, I think a metric could be around availability as compared to, to ownership. 
you know, you think about those construction vehicles that are a part of the 8120 offering, um, you know, there is an argument to say, well, industry can provide those on an availability basis, particularly where there's a training requirement. The flip side of that is cost of capital and, you know, the Commonwealth does have, you know, a pretty competitive cost of capital right now. And so, you know, if they don't have to pay cost of capital, you know, at industry rates, you know, they can take that particular discount as well. So, yeah, there's arguments for for and against. Um, I know uh, in the UK in particular, they've, they've gone for a PFI model where, you know, uh, Army, again, for construction vehicles, has decided they don't need to own them and they can take them on an availability basis. That works. Uh, I can see that in the civilian world, uh, for instance, airlines power by the hour, yep. um, army construction. Okay, so we've got these construction tools. But there's this one little thing when you're working with defence, they can wind up in areas that are a little hotter than you might find in your average work environment, um, where instead of just somebody yelling at you, you've actually got them throwing things that could you know, seriously cause injury. How, how does that work for civilian contractors supplying the assets and training and, and maintaining and being available, like you said, to pick up a vehicle anywhere in Australia and all that? How does that work if it's actually forward deployed into a real world environment? Yeah, I, I think um, in that particular environment, and it's a, it's a really good question, my view is that there's a, a mix available so that um, if Defence does want to take vehicles and they might own a proportion of vehicles to make sure they've got everything they need to deploy when they need to deploy. And then, for example, industry supplies the vehicles to backfill training. So um, because, you know, the, if a, a young recruit's coming through and, and, and training on a bit of kit, it doesn't necessarily have to be painted green um, to get the training effect. So... Yeah, and you could then pull the equipment from you know locally rather than having to move the recruits around the country, etc. So I think you know because it's a very real and a good question. Um, Defence, in fairness to them, want to be able to put their hands on a bit of kit and take it with them whenever they want. In my mind, the question might be then: Okay, well, if Defence does that, how do we maintain the training capability behind all of that so they can continue to train? and recruit and do all those things um, without um, degrading the, tr the training environment because they've taken everything they own, you know, to deploy overseas. That, in my mind, is a, is a possible model as well. And that's where you'd see uniforms doing forward, uh, like in the front line kind of maintenance, but then stage back to a safer area for more deep, deeper maintenance. Is that is that how the model would work? It, in my mind, yes. And we've done some – we put some people into exercise Hamill um, Talisman Sabre, uh, you know, to test that particular model with Joint Logistics Command. Um, how can we improve the availability of vehicles, you know, in the in the training environment, in, in the exercise environment, by having um, trained people close to uh, where the vehicles are required. So when the, the vehicles are brought back, um, they're not just taken out of service. There's things we can do to get them back into service and back into the exercise and, again, improve availability. If you think about our workforce, you know, we attract and, and, and are really proud of the fact that we attract a lot of ex-ADF personnel into the team. So they actually they love this type of approach. They love the ability that every now and then they might get to go and do some of the stuff that they used to do. And, of course, it's in a different environment and, of course, they have a weapon, et cetera. But fundamentally, they get the pressures 
that the units are under and, and how do we go about um, supporting those units so that they can keep high availability of assets. So we like the idea that it might be possible in the future that uh, we deploy forward, not as far forward as the ADF, but we deploy forward to provide that support so that they can continue to be effective. So, Derek, just to wind up, I'd, I'd like to note that um, your work in the PFAS realm was recognised as a finalist in the Essington Lewis Awards uh, last year, which was fantastic. Can you tell us a bit more about the work that you are doing in the PFAS space at the moment? Sure. Look, it's a it's a really interesting problem and um, it's a widespread one that, that we're really pleased that we can support. Obviously, we've got – I say obviously, it's perhaps not obvious, but – um, a key part of our offering to defence is um, airfield firefighting and firefighting generally. So um, making sure that we're fully compliant and the capability we offer there is is meeting all their requirements is is important. And, and we won some awards for um, how we're dealing with making sure our, our fleet has high availability and deals with PFAS issues at the same time. So that's that's been good. But then the flip side of that is the ground treatment, the groundwater treatment, um, soil treatment. And the reality is that there are large areas that do need to be treated. And as a consequence, how do we go about doing that effectively in the defence environment? And so that's something you know, we're really pleased to have been able to bring to the bases, the ability to establish plants of different size to treat soil, to treat water, take PFAS out of the environment and do it in a, in a cost-effective way, a reliable way, and not impact defence operations and capability as well. So it can be set up on a base, get going up and running, and really start to deliver and just run in the background for as long as defence needs it. So huge challenge for defence. We understand that you know, we'll do whatever we can to continue to support it. And obviously, it's not just an issue for defence as well. I mean, there are so many sites around Australia that are... Uh, trying to deal with the PFAS issue in so many ways. Are you working with other um, state governments or councils on on PFAS work? Yeah, we, we've we've done uh, a lot of work with state government in particular. Barangaroo, for example, established this enormous structure um, to to deal with uh, contaminated soil. So literally built a big tent, a massive tent, like. In my mind, the world's biggest tent, but I'm probably not. Um, but you know, to make sure that we could maintain the right air pressures so that things didn't escape the site, etc., and treated tons and tons of soil at Barangaroo to rehabilitate that particular site before all the construction that you see now has gone on. So that capability is is really important to Ventia. It's important to our clients because it allows them to meet increasing environmental goals and standards. We can be part of that process, you know, with them. Sometimes long-term process, to be honest. You know, it, it's not always the fastest process, but it's such an essential thing to, to do. Well, Derek Osborne, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, talking to us about Ventia and all these amazing logistics and operations that are going on. Um, quite enlightening and very much appreciated. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Kath. Appreciate uh, Once again, we're back in the groove, starting it up for the new year. Yes, indeed. Bring on 2021. <laughs> indeed. Well, ladies and gents, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, welcome back to the ADM podcast for 2021. And we're hoping we won't be too long between uh, gasps as we have our next podcast coming out in the not too distant future. Thanks for joining us once again. 
The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yeffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yaffa Media Podcast.